Hello and welcome to episode eight of A Decade Apart. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my co-host Calvin. Hey man, how's it going? Good, good, good. Today is Sunday the 13th of August and in today's episode we're going to be talking about the BBC. You might have heard about them in the news uh, here in the UK. Um, basically they had to release some figures on their salaries they pay their staff and um, out of that came a story about gender inequality which is quite interesting but we'll get into that in a second. Um, before I do that I just want to apologise um, firstly because uh, Calvin when was our last show? Um, I want to say three weeks ago. Three and a half, four. It's, a, it's three and a half, so let's just call it a month, okay? <laughs> and uh, uh, why was that? Um, because I'm an idiot, <laughs> to sum it up. <laughs> and why are you an idiot? Um, because I accidentally, but still my fault, I'll take responsibility, I broke my laptop. So, yeah, recording equipment sidelined for a good while. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the desire here is that your microphone has to plug into your laptop to work, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I'll, yeah, exactly. I'll just put it out there. So the trackpad on my laptop broke, but I think... The thing they had to replace, like, I didn't even know like that existed, to be honest, like in the laptop. So, okay, okay. Like, but it happened when you put it in your bag on the way into London. So, if you hadn't done that, it would never have broken. So, it, it is actually just your fault. So, I mean, like, it was, I was showing you something after work, but fine. Like, the one day I bring it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the detail here is you didn't put it in a case in the bag, you just put it in the bag. Okay, okay, it's my fault. Like, we just start. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you put it in a bag with no padding into your bag and expected it to last the commute to London. <laughs> To be fair, I had um, uh, Amazon Prime three quid case like cover, so okay, a lot, a right. lot of protection. <laughs> fair enough. Anyway, you need to invest in that. Um, so yeah, it's been a while since our last show. We have to apologise for that, but we're going to get back into the rhythm uh, this week. Um, Calvin got your laptop where on Thursday? Yeah, Thursday. We're good. And we're recording Sunday at 8 p.m. This is going to be amazing. We're going to try and get the episode out today. Can you believe that? We're going to get it out the same day. I know. Ah, this is going to be the freshest episode ever. <laughs> Put like fresh praise. Okay, so so let's get straight into this. Um, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. So, um, Calvin, do you want to give some background into this? Um, I mean, the BBC in general, or their scandals that have been reported. Yeah, so the scandal. So why why did they have to release the figures that they were releasing? So I think it was something which David Cameron. I don't know the year which he made this official, but it was essentially their funding was threatened to be cut. I think it was for around seven hundred million. I don't know. That's just what comes mm -hmm. to my head, but. Yeah. I think the cuts didn't go ahead, but as a condition, they had to include a breakdown of where all their funding went to. And it just so mm -hmm. happened that they obviously had to publicly release all of their pay structure as well. So I think they released their report a day before all the attention started to come out because people weren't expecting what they were going to find. But essentially what they found was two main things. All of the female main broadcasters and all of the other females working just in the general show aspects of the BBC are highly underpaid with respect to their male counterparts on the similar shows. And then okay. as a whole for all of the broadcasters, they're highly underpaid compared against the private sector. Interesting. Interesting. So let's step back a bit here. So the reason this happened is because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of interest within the political parties to essentially uh, farm out the BBC into to, to, to private entities, right? So the license fee and the funding that the government has to produce to, to the BBC is a substantial cost. And so there's a lot of interest uh, within, I guess, the Conservative Party, but also other parties about, to try and to try and basically reduce that burden on the government and try and make this into a, a private sort of corporation, a corporation that can run itself or to sell it to an entity that can run itself. But because that would be a massively unpopular move, um, they're basically taking the steps to try and make that a natural conclusion out of, I'm going to say, public disdain for the way that the BBC is run and the way that money is spent within the BBC. Right. So I think the David Cameron's sort of move was kind of clever because it said, yes, we'll maintain funding of a particular kind, but 
what you're going to have to do is tell the public what you pay your top, I think he's your top 100 um, employees. Uh, yeah. Employees. Exactly. And so that's kind of like a very funny targeted thing, right? Uh, if you're going to show the, uh, you know, salary of the top 100, I mean, why draw the line at the top 100? It's, it, it seems like a very like uh, sort of arbitrary thing um, just to just to prove a point rather than actually looking at what's going on. I think it would have been interesting if the BBC didn't necessarily say Gary Lineker earns this much, but instead they said, here's a spread of pay within our organization. This is how it looks like in terms of ethnicity. This is how it looks like in terms of um, gender. This is how it looks like for our most watched shows rather than naming individuals and then showing you the scale. So showing you that someone did earn 20 something million and some people earn, uh, you know, a hundred thousand. And then you could sort of deduce and dig into that and start to do very interesting sort of um, journalistic things like starting to ask the BBC to tell you, um, you know, the figures behind certain aspects of that. Because I think by narrowing on the top 100, we're not actually getting the full story. I think the full story is actually kind of being concealed here because we're focusing on what is actually going to be a minority of the BBC staff at the very, very, very top. And the gender inequality there might not be the same as gender inequality throughout the organization. In fact, it might be worse. It could be better, but it might be worse. But because we're focusing on the very, very top 100, it skews our perception of everything. We think that if this happens to the top 100, then it's actually happening elsewhere. But, you know, logic suggests that that's not the case because situations like this where people are getting paid millions, of course, the distortion is going to be massive. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so the BBC had to publish uh, these figures um, about their salaries uh, in order to sort of secure this deal uh, a while back. But uh, the gender inequality sort of topic came out of it. And I think it was, it was, it was very fascinating. Um, I think one of the standout things, it wasn't just about gender inequality, it was also about ethnicity. Yeah. Um, I think the top uh, male uh, black presenter or something earned considerably less than his um, sort of white equivalent. And it, it gets very dodgy ground to talk about this topic because um, you obviously have to bear in mind... Um, unconscious bias, which is which is a very big thing, not just in you know the BBC, but Google this week just uh, had an absolute nightmare <laughs> with this uh, guy who decided to uh, create uh, launch his manifesto on how uh, sort of gender inequality should be tackled, and he basically prefaced it by saying that gender inequality is a biological thing and it's natural, and actually if you're going to solve it, you need to do this in a slightly different way. And he, he, the guy got sacked. Mate, that was um, the thing he did this. At, that was the worst thing it, I've read. <laughs> I know, I know, it was diabolical. <laughs> But the thing is, he did this a month ago, and it only just came out now because it's gone viral within the organization. <laughs> and so for it to go viral, people must also agree with it as much as they disagree with it. I mean, yeah, because like, that was the, the people... um, contention in Google. Because I think a lot of people, I want to say within the sub-department that he was controlling, were annoyed, A, that the memo got leaked, but that there was pressure for him to get fired because they felt that, to an extent, that his views were being oppressed, but that went against Google's culture of there being an open forum for discussion internally. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 a very like it's a very divisive topic. Um, not because people believe that there sh- uh, there shouldn't be gender equality within um, the employment space. Not just for issues like pay, but it's a little bit broader than that. Like opportunity to to jobs, opportunity and access to certain things, um, equal consideration in terms of um, promotion opportunities. It's a lot broader than just pay. And to focusing on pay, I think is is actually quite wrong. I think I think a lot of the media, a lot of the discussion got carried away with the salary as if salary is the only measure by which people are judged by at work. I know a lot of people who do jobs where they know they're not getting the best salary that they can, but they're doing it because they love what they do. They're doing it in, for example, the public sector or the charitable sector, you know, non-profit, for example. They, people know they're not getting the same salary as they could get elsewhere. And so to focus just on salary, I think, is a mistake. Um, it's only one measure, really, for 
the inequality within the organization. I think a bigger inequality is actually uh, the glass ceiling, you know, the inability for people of certain ethnicity, sorry, ethnicity, I can't say this today, ethnicity or people of certain gender to get to certain levels of an organization purely because of unconscious bias or you know, as, as some of the research seems to suggest and um, sort of the barriers that that social economic group can experience in order to get to that position um, in the long term. And so it's, it's, it's very, it's a very sort of integrated issue. Oh, no, I mean, I would say salary and the glass ceiling are probably the two biggest things. Because I guess for a business and if you're the chief executive or the person who deals with the payment structure, the salary you pay someone is really one of the only ways that you can tell that person your value to them. I mean, obviously by that and then the position they get. So yep, yep. I don't, and I don't I, think I mean, it was a mistake for them to focus solely on the salary because the salary really was the main info which came out, which wasn't prevalent before. So people had already had years to talk about the number of presenters being on TV, how many people are coming through the industry. So everyone thought, okay, there's more female presenters. You have more people coming on in the shows they were doing. So you have people thinking, actually, it's getting better. But then you have the other 50% of, no, here's what the BBC actually values them. So... So the, the the thing is okay. So I'm gonna sound a little bit um, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna go into, into dodgy ground here. But the thing is, the lowest salary in that list of a hundred uh, people was a hundred and fifty thousand a year. I mean, but I think it's a I it's mean, a relative salary. It's not the absolute term. You have to take it in the context of the in the entertainment sector. So that figure is a low salary for that sector, anyways. But, but what the, the point I'm making is, does do those a hundred people actually present what the represent what the bbc is that yes they are the figures you know figureheads of these shows they are the figureheads of um you know shows that people have come to love that people into you know sort of um you know like work with these people people see these people every single day um and i think it's actually like a little bit dodgy because the majority of the people in the bbc don't earn this much and actually if you were to drill down a little bit deeper you might find that this inequality is actually harsher for example, you might find, for example, that um, within the same gender, there is a racial inequality. Oh, for example. definitely. It's actually yeah. much more prevalent than the gender inequality. And so when you're trying to resolve this by just looking at what I'm going to say, I don't know how many people work at the BBC. Let me let me let me Google this. Um, BBC employees. That's probably not going to give me the answer. <laughs> I wish it did. <laughs> like the neat Google form. It'll probably be like but the BBC, a couple thousand, if that. Yeah, a number of employees, 20,000. Yeah. Okay. 20,000 people worldwide, and you focused in on the salaries of the top 100. I mean, that is not going to give you any perception of really where the issue is. I mean, for those top 100 people, the presenters, who perceive themselves to be doing uh, broadly similar things, fine. That's a very narrow group you're sort of going out to protect. I mean, before you said um, David Cameron potentially did this on purpose. Maybe he's smart enough to know that if he wants to create a narrative where the BBC gets a lot of disdain on itself for the next few years, which will force pressure on it to become defunded. Like, yeah. if you want to create controversy, he's clever enough to know that the disparity between gender pay will be worst at the top 100 in that sector. Yeah, and he, just simply because and he these, will have had visibility. Yeah, the salaries just get inflated and inflated the higher you go, so. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and this is what I'm talking about, about looking at the top 100, because of the amount of figures you're talking about. Like, if, for example, if Gary Lineker was sitting in his yearly appraisal and they gave him a 2% increase, that's a huge increase oh. in real terms, right? Yeah. yeah? But that same increase for someone who earns 50,000 is like nothing. And so this is why I say like by focusing on the 100, the top 100, you're actually potentially distorting the issue 
either way, you could actually be concealing a bigger issue as much as you are uh, inflating an issue. Yeah. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take sides as to what's actually going on because we don't know. We don't know the figures. Yeah, of course. So for an organization that employs twenty thousand people, um, as a as someone who works with data, you know, every single day uh, in business intelligence for organizations, I know that it's bad practice to focus in on a minority and then extrapolate that relationship to the whole organization when you know for a fact that everyone on this list earns salaries that are just you know out of this world yeah. i mean jeremy corbyn would be having a heart attack if he saw all these salaries <laughs> he'd be thinking this is my tax list for next year <laughs> <laughs> i mean um you know you made a point earlier about like the unconscious bias aspect to all of yeah. this i mean yeah. yeah i don't know for me it seems too big a decision for unconscious bias to act towards like for me i guess when i someone says that term to me i always think just about the way i speak just daily when like, i don't really mean what i say or i don't sometimes think about what's influencing what i'm about to say to someone or a group but i think like okay. with this type of decision when you have all the people who are working for you men women of different ethnicity groups like it's a conscious decision to pay someone less than someone else and i think this is true and i this think that you can't have an unconscious reason for that because like you have to justify it not only to yourself but like whoever you're deciding the pay structure with so i think yeah whether it comes down to the fact that women definitely burden a greater deal of childcare role than men do. The fact that mm -hmm. men don't really take paternity leave, which is offered to them. And even when it is offered, it's offered at a terrible rate comparatively. And I think, yeah. yeah, so I think also as well, like it's a generational issue. I mean, I don't mean to stereotype everyone who's saying like an older age bracket here, but I guess there's no better way of putting mm -hmm. it. People from that generation, that era, tended to have different views about discrimination and the types of jobs women should have, their aptitude for certain sectors and jobs. So. I think to me, I'd argue that to an extent, it's more conscious than unconscious. I think saying it's unconscious yeah. sort of denies taking any responsibility for it. Yeah, but I think I think um, the phrase unconscious bias comes from um, a thing that is that has been proven to happen, where uh, either through generational, um, you know, sort of perceptions or the environment that you've brought up in, your brain makes unconscious decisions about um, some of the decisions you're going to make. So there's a, there's a really good book by a guy called Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for economics, not because he discovered some economic theory, but he actually talked about how this effect causes people to behave really weirdly when it comes to economical decisions. So um, to summarize the book, uh, I recommend that you go, go and grab it. Um, to, to summarize the effect, he basically talks about how when you are doing something or thinking, your unconscious self is often light years ahead of your conscious self by the time your conscious self has started to think about something your un, your subconscious has already made a decision so for example when you're making food choices yeah yeah uh, you, you stand in front of a whole range of foods your subconscious has already decided what you're going to have okay it's already assessed the range of things that are possible and when people engage their conscious selves they massively slow themselves down and the decision they arrive at is exactly the same as what they would have arrived at in subconscious in a subconscious way, except for it's just taken them so much longer. And actually, he talks about scenarios where that is a good thing, scenarios where that's a bad thing, um, essentially talking about like, you know, how, how those things work. And then uh, there's another concept where you take advantage of that particular uh, phenomenon and you start nudging people. And so the idea is that you start, for example, you start changing where certain things come in the menu. So people are more inclined to see the salads first and therefore think maybe I should have a salad. And you put the unhealthy foods right at the bottom or on the back or in a physical restaurant, you put them in the, in the far corner. Yeah. 
you know, I have that at work actually, to get to the unhealthy stuff, you actually have to walk all the way through the canteen. And as you do that, you see all these healthy options on the left and right. And the thing is they look good and they smell good and you probably stop um, on your way there. So funny thing happened to me this week. I've been eating salads all week <laughs> because on the way on the way to the chicken and, and, and chips counter, I literally just see nothing but really good healthy salads. And so in my mind, a guilt, a guilt, a guilt thing kicks in and saying, well, if the salad and the fresh stuff looks that good and it's actually really well served, why not have it? And I end up spending more money, which is also an annoying thing. Um, fresh food does cost more money when it's done properly. But it's funny that, that I've never had that happen to me before. Like when, when, when chicken is being served, I'm always there. <laughs> <On it>. But, <laughs> but where, where I've been working this week, which I can't name, their canteen has absolutely nailed it. Like I'm, all, I'm literally taking away salad boxes every single day. Um, I'm, still, I'm still lacing myself with Coke, which is equally unhealthy. But um, nonetheless, um, at least you know, props to them for changing that. But anyway, that, that was a digression. Let's get back to the topic. Unconscious bias is a real thing. I don't think it's trying to an excuse to try and get away from it i think you have to be actually very very aware of it in uh, big startups in, in america and also in the uk in big organizations they actually have training to to try and train you out of unconscious bias to the point where um even in recruitment interviews for example the questions you ask could inherently have an unconscious bias in them because if you ask certain questions you give certain people opportunity uh, to express themselves more than if you didn't ask a certain type of question yeah of so, course it's a very very real thing but you know the thing is and i just want to move this topic on a little bit i, I think i think this gender uh, pay issue actually exists beyond the bbc i don't think this is a bbc thing i think if itv netflix amazon sky published all the salaries of their top 100 you'd find exactly the same thing Definitely. if not probably worse probably worse because they're private companies and I, I count on this situation being a hundred times worse in the private in the private sector than I do uh, in um, somewhere like the BBC. That has to be open to an extent where people are, you know, figureheads. They have to do things in an ethical way. Like the BBC has to do what it does on the budget that it does because it has this reputation and it's able to go out and punch well above its way in terms of the money that it gets because it's built this reputation over the years for serving good quality content. So people are willing to go and work at the BBC. Directors, producers are willing to cut their rates for the BBC because having their names associated to the BBC is a good thing. Sure. Whereas in private, in the private sector, I doubt that's the case. And it's funny because, um, you know, the, the title of this podcast is um, should the BBC be more like, more like Netflix or something along the lines. You haven't decided yet, but it's funny because if you look at the competitors, the emerging competitors uh, that we have in the market, they're technology firms, they're Netflix, they're Amazon, they're Apple. The, these companies have suddenly turned up to the media game in a big way. And the scary thing is they're not just turning up in, in small ways. They're not just, you know, okay, Apple bought uh, Carpool Karaoke. That is a pretty small, <laughs> small, that is a pretty small thing to turn up with. They don't have anything else. But if you look at the likes of Amazon and Netflix, I mean, they were, they're winning Oscars and Golden Globes. They're, they're going out with massive checkbooks, you know, the Cannes Film Festival, buying up shows left, right and center. And just, this is all in the space of a decade. They've just turned up to what BBC would have thought it was, you know, a dominant player in. And now they're being encroached. People are watching Netflix instead of iPlayer. And even this year, the beginning of this year, the BBC general, director general, had basically had to make a statement saying this year they're going for Netflix. They're going to compete against Netflix because it's 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 turning into a massive competitive disadvantage to not be serving the kind of audiences watching Netflix. And it's funny because if you look at the audience figures, the BBC has a really good spread. And don't forget, BBC also does radio. But 
where Netflix and Amazon are absolutely killing it are the millennials. You know, this emerging sort of group of individuals who over the next five and 10 years are going to start to have immense spending power in the economy. They're going to start deciding and moving. All the marketing is going to start pivoting towards them because they'll now be sort of populating that, you know, 30 to, you know, 50 age range. Where you have a large propensity to spend. You have the ability to make decisions for your family. And we've sort of been brought up with this technology right from the start. So, you know, your Amazons and Netflixes, they have all this information about you since you were a teenager because you've been making those relationships and, and sort of connections through their technologies and through their products. And now they're in an amazing ability to capitalize on that when you have the most ability to spend. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what do you think about I don't that? Know, I mean, I don't see how the BBC can compete just because of the fact that they are state funded. So Netflix, I don't know how much money they lost this year, but the amount they've invested in acquiring all those original content, pen directors, actors, competitive rates, and then also acquiring all the rights to properties, like they've been making a loss consistently, I think, like year on year, because they know in 10, 15 years, hopefully they will be not even just the media platform, but like entertainment itself. Hopefully they'll be number mm -hmm. one. But I don't think the BBC, just because of the way it's brought up, the way it was created and the way it functions, can justify those risks with taxpayer money. I just don't think they'll be able to ever convince, say, David Cameron, whoever's in charge of that, whoever be on culture media support and sport so, cabinet minister. So, I mean, I mean, let's 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 look at these figures. So, in 2012, uh, Netflix uh, brought in three billion dollars, uh, and uh, it cost them roughly two point six. So, they made like a just under a billion in in terms of profit. Oh, they actually made in a 2016, profit. Yeah, they're, 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 okay. So, the way these things work out is that it's not actually. <laughs> This is sort of startup economics where you make a profit, but not really. Okay, so um, you have to be you have to be an accountant to really understand. Because I, so I don't want to be wrong by my claim that they've been making a loss consistently. Because then, <laughs> <laughs> all right then, like... all right then. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up. I'm gonna put up. Um, uh, I'm gonna. What am I gonna pull up? Uh, Alpha. Yeah. Basically, was what I said statistically wrong, or is there a factual basis to the fact they have been making losses? Let's find out. Let's find out. The best source in the world, Wikipedia. <laughs> Net income, US dollars, 187 million. Operating income, 380. Revenue, 8.83 billion. So, yeah, net income is 187 million. So it's very, very small. Um, but they have a, a mother ton of money sort of going through. Okay. Right. So, I mean, the, the numbers are this. 103 million users worldwide paid users, which is oh, phenomenal. Like... That is an audience bigger than the population of the UK, which I think should make the BBC extremely worried. Like, because the BBC obviously has a remit mostly domestic. It has a function abroad, but it's mostly domestic. Um, and the companies like Netflix just will have a global audience. So they're, they're not just going to stop when they, you know, they've hit the UK numbers. They're going to keep going into China, into India, into Asia, into Russia. They're just going to keep creating content for all of these economies until they get to, you know, of course. saturation. And then they'll just diversify. Um, by increasing rates and stuff like that. Um, so you're not, you're not, so you're, you're, you're sort of close. The net income is 187 million in 2016. Uh, that's as reported um, on Wikipedia, the best source in the world. But the, the thing about that number is there is, there's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit hidden there because they get a lot of money in and they aggressively spend it. So you really have to wait and see when the companies aren't spending on, on, on growing the company because that gives you a true reflection for how much money they're actually making. Yeah. Um, but they have a massive sort of growth incentive. But I mean, if we look at the BBC, if we just look at the BBC's um, figures, I'm just going to look at the licence fee, which is, I guess for you and me and people in the UK, the best representation of what we're getting for our money. Um, 
The average household in, in, in 2016 and uh, 17 paid £12.13 uh, per household in terms of licence fee, okay? Um, I actually have a dispute about that because I swear I pay more for my TV licence every year. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> it might go out to all these other channels as well. For another day. Um, and radio, yeah. I mean, oh, don't even get <laughs> I mean, I'll go there. I'll go there in a second. But let me finish this point. Uh, television, £6.92. Okay, fair enough. In 2015 and 16. I'm quoting, by the way, the BBC uh, annual report here. Um, the radio, £2. Uh, two pence. BBC Worldwide, 90p. I mean, why is a licence fee pay? Am I paying for BBC World Service? I mean, I think an element of BBC World Service brings in news from around the world. But, you know, I, I just still don't think that should, that's, that's a function I should actually be paying for. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's small chips. It's, it's 90p. I mean... What the Let's hell? forget about it. Uh, other services and production costs, 82p. That's a cloak and dagger term, other services and production costs. It's like Anything they justify. Expenses, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> expenses for Gary Lineker's crisps. Um, <laughs> online, this really surprises me. Online, 90p per license. I mean, 90p. 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 I know, right? For a company that's supposed to be trying to compete with Netflix. And TV's six pounds like this... 90. Exactly. Online should be a really big really big i mean definitely not as big as tv and radio but it should be equal to radio at least at two pounds uh, two pence uh, per license fee i mean if you're going to invest in the kind of technology you need to invest in to have the operational efficiency to to distribute your content like the netflixes and amazons you've got to spend more and invest more on that it's just not acceptable but i mean um, like and then here with yeah, so back to the director saying now it's time to compete isn't it it's going to be like an issue that dc studios have with marvel dc are trying to get to where marvel are now the only issue is once they get to where Marvel was this year, a year later, Marvel will be already like three, five years in advance. So I don't see, it just seems irrational to me to try and compete when you're not going to win. So here's the, here's the thing. Uh, I don't think they're trying to compete in terms of content. I actually think the BBC has some of the best content worldwide. I mean, if you take shows like Top Gear, like that's a perfect example. Amazon tried to copy it. It didn't really work. They're continuing with their effort, but it hasn't worked. Like Top Gear has stayed. And that's a great example of a show that they've taken worldwide and people love worldwide. If you go onto Netflix, just look at how many BBC shows are on there, whether it's Planet Earth 2, Planet Earth 1. They're just BBC has a very good pedigree for making stuff that people want to watch worldwide. If that is not the problem in terms of competition. The problem is the efficiencies, the cost, it, the, the amount of money they have to do that exact same job and distribute that content. And by me, when I say distribute, I mean being able to put that content in front of me as a user when I'm typically not hardwired, for example, to be sat in front of the TV on a Sunday at 8 p.m. ready for Planet Earth 2, you know? That stuff, all that audience time has moved to on-demand, okay? And when you think on-demand, I don't think of iPlayer. I really don't. I think of iPlayer as, oh, I missed a show on TV. Oh, yes, I can still catch yeah, it on iPlayer. Exactly. I don't think of... I don't think of iPlayer as, ah, oh, I wonder what I'll watch. When I do that, I fire up two services, Amazon and Netflix. <laughs> I don't fire up the BBC iPlayer and see and say, what can I watch? Obviously, yes, I pay for Amazon and Netflix. And that is maybe why my default is to go towards the things that I pay. Whereas because I don't feel like I pay directly for uh, you know, the BBC, although I do through license pay, I don't automatically think, let me make use of my money. And so this comes to a point of like, you know, I actually think the BBC would be better off as a private organization. But again, let's, let's push that to one side. Let's stay on this track. They need to spend more on online. And this is the best line here. License fee collection and pension deficit costs, 57 pence. I mean, okay. I mean, license fee collection, fine. I'd say, have they heard of PayPal or Stripe <laughs> or, you know, Apple Pay? Like, <laughs> well, it's because they, um, they, always, they always do, like, I, wouldn't, I, don't, I think it's more than yearly, but, like, yeah. all the, like, the cost of all the letters they have to put out, the free post yeah, envelope yeah. as well. Like, yeah, and the pension deficit. 
Like, why is my license fee money going into plugging a hole, essentially a mistake, it's made somewhere in the pension scheme? Like, I, I want to pay for my own pension, yes. But, and I'm, uh, yes, with every single product, a certain percentage of your portions goes into that organization. But when it's a publicly or, like run organization and you're forced to pay the license fee, like, there's no option. You can't not watch TV and not pay the TV license. The BBC has a monopoly in that regard. Even on Freebie, they, they, I think they're one of the few channels that actually gets money from you as an individual. Um, and yeah, 57 pence, it, it is it is absolutely alarming. And if I go back to radio, I'm just going to make this brief point. Radio is one of the most alarming areas to me because the majority of radio spend doesn't go where you think it goes. It doesn't go to your Radio 1 and Radio 2, you know, the big stations that I think everyone listens to. It actually goes into local radio, which I find massively alarming because I just don't think the local radio audiences justify the kind of money that is being spent. I mean, how much again, how much you, traffic goes through local radio then? So the BBC annual report has this in terms of listener listener hours. So um, let me just uh, let me just zoom back out. I've got it right in front of me here. I've, I'll put a photo in the in the show notes of, about my setup today. Um, so let me just go back. I'm gonna have to cut this out because uh, <laughs> here you go. Go for it. All right. So local radio, local radio. Okay. Do you want to guess what it's how much the BBC spends on it? Um, in the same metric as all the other figures. Yeah, in in in, in numbers. Yeah, I'm gonna, roughly how many pounds? I'm gonna say. Judging by how I can, t- I can sense how angry you are about it, I'm going to say at least two pounds. Okay, so the BBC does spend two pounds per license fee user on radio. Oh, yes. hang on. But, but, it, but in terms of the total spend on local radio, just local radio, what do you think it is? Um, Something a subset. Over one pound? Okay. Okay, it's not quite. It's not quite. So the total figure for local radio is 112.9 million. Like, oh, the, seriously? Oh, the total figure. Um, I mean, I get seriously? I think so. We were talking before about how Netflix targets that millennial generation, which is going to grow up to be in that spending power. I think we may underestimate how much of a reach local radio has just because in our day-to-day lives, like we're not around people who listen to local radio just because we're not in that demographic. So only it only reaches 14.6% of the English population. So 112 million goes into an audience that reaches just over 10% of the UK population, okay? Now, those those 14.6% spend 8 hours 36 minutes every week listening to local radio. And the appreciation rating is high. It's good. It's 82.7. And it figures out at a cost per user hour of 4 pence. The cost per user hour is basically how much it costs to deliver each service to individual user. So... For every hour that each each listener listens to it, um, it's four pence. Which is, if you compare compare that to the Netflix sort of model, it is actually an extremely large cost. Because what's the marginal cost for Netflix to stream you content? It's like zero, yeah. because they they buy their data in bulk. They have a sort of relationships with all the ISPs. They have setups globally with all the different content providers. Like if they can get another hundred thousand people through their door, it doesn't really actually cost them much more. If they if that number goes up massively, then yes, it costs them more in terms of reaching new thresholds. But they can they can statistically sort of plan for that. And I think it's sort of it's sort of bizarre. But yeah, just oh, local radios. I mean, it's a good thing, but come on, seriously, like the BBC needs to compete. This is not the kind of thing well, I don't, that allows the BBC to compete. I don't think on it's a, an organization, an international level. It's not an organization suited to compete. It just, <laughs> in the structure that it's currently in, it can't. The amount of funding it would need to pump. But this is, it, but this is what they're trying to do. This is what the director general just said. He said he's going to have to go after Netflix, and yet he's busy carrying around. I mean, 
if Netflix saw this number, they'd can they'd can local radio tomorrow. I mean, he knows. Like, even though he's like giving all the bravado on the press releases, he knows that it's a dead end. Like, he knows that eventually it's all going to be for nothing. So it's just they're restricted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is the thing. Like, it's incredibly difficult to. I mean, I can sit here and and champion. I can champion that you know these things should go and so on and so forth. I mean. The BBC is there with a mission to actually serve all these people this content and it is actually designed and set up deliberately to look after smaller audiences. So to provide content that isn't typically found on TV and doesn't typically meet all the genres. But I just still think if you're going to compete, they need to they need to look at restructuring the BBC so that there is a commercial side of the BBC that can actually go aggressively at targeting things like technology, innovation, uh, content. I mean, at the moment, it's all okay because, you know, the likes of Netflix and Amazon aren't really prying away producers and directors because people still want to work with the BBC. But fast forward five years. I mean, we've already got an issue with Sky. Have you heard about what's happening with Sky and Amazon? Yeah, Amazon are like primed to get the Premier League rights for the next three to five years. Exactly. And Sky is having to foot up an extra two billion pounds to to, to safeguard the rights that it already wants. That's the thing, because Twitter already two years ago, they secured... um, rights to show NFL games on Thursday nights. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah obviously BT we've all had had the thing with them getting Champions League rights as well. Even though I think compared to the yeah. Premier League, it's a dead end just in terms of viewership and, numbers. And, and here's the thing, like these companies are serious. They just have to turn up with a checkbook. They don't care how big the checkbook has to be because they're not interested in the content. The reason these companies are entering the game is to keep the content coming in so people can use their technology and services. It's to lock you in. It's to lock you into their platforms. They're not in this to, for example, uh, feed the good of the UK population. They're not in this to look after the small sort of niche audiences. Although I'd argue that by being big and by doing things at the kind of scale that they're doing, interestingly, the content that you're seeing on Netflix and Amazon is actually feeding niche niche audiences in a bigger way than actually even the BBC and so on already doing. For example, when Netflix launched, you didn't get a real big variety of shows. There's only one or two Netflix originals and they're all very sort of mainstream sort of focused. Now you're getting dramas about um, issues to do with gender inequality, you know, a whole range of stories that are being compiled by different writers from different worlds, which are actually coming and representing these niche storylines that you just never see on, 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 on primetime TV. But because it's on demand, they can make this content at really, really good rates and just keep it on there. And then it just stays. The library just keeps growing and growing and growing. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, Sky, interestingly, Sky lost their rights to um, the ATP tour for tennis. Yeah. To, um, oh, wow. Oh, I can't remember which company took it away from them. Actually, I think it was Amazon. Yeah, yeah. probably is. Let me double check that. But it was this funny thing where I said, 10 years ago, if you wanted to get all of your sport, you'd go to Sky because you knew they had a foothold exactly. and everything. But now it's yeah. getting to the point where if you want everything, you have to split your split your bets across three to four services. It's so annoying. It so yeah, so let me get the story so you, up. You end, Amazon outbids, the thing is you end, Amazon outbids Sky to an exclusive ATP tour tennis rights. Exactly. And the thing is, it's like, so where is that content? Like, I, I like I'm going to be really curious because I'm a Amazon, I'm an Amazon subscriber while through Prime, but I like. Like, how do I watch these ATP shows? Like, I've never seen a live TV show aspect of Amazon. Like, um, maybe I'm missing out on it. Or maybe they're syndicating the content back out to places like Sky and Virgin are waiting for their, like, long-term uh, thing where they're going to probably want to launch some live TV stuff. Yeah. But it's it's getting increasingly funny that, you know, media organisations are being killed left, right and centre by technology firms, whether it's through advertising like Google, essentially stealing all the advertising from uh, print and uh, traditional media and basically sucking it all into ads online and on the web, or 
you've got this where they're literally buying up all the media they're buying up shows just because they've got checkbooks and they can they've got the devices they've got the technology infrastructure to deliver you this content and they're just running away with it yeah i mean i just think in terms of media you can't be a one-dimensional type of company anymore so all no. of the big do you think yeah go on do you think the bbc should be um a private company um oh shit I mean, it's hard because the thing is, I think the thing is, we you don't, know we could do better. We don't attach, I think, an emotional and sentimental value to what the BBC is that I think a good proportion of people in the UK probably do. I mean, if you're strictly okay. looking at it in the basis of we want the BBC to survive in what it's doing right now, then I think being private is the only logical conclusion because otherwise they will just get out-competed. Like it's, no, it's, yeah. it's not a contest against Netflix and Amazon and Google and Twitter and even Facebook. I mean, face, Facebook's yeah. starting to get in the television rights game now. Like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They, they need more reasons to keep you, in, um, you know, on their social media stream. And well, they're probably looking at their stats and they're seeing a massive group of users stop using their service as soon as the football matches come on. So they're probably thinking, wait a minute, if we put the football match on our service exclusively, they'll stay on our service. Yeah. Like, they're, literally, they're competing for time, your time. Because I'm... Um, I think the CEO of Snapchat this week, he was getting a lot of criticism, I think because they released poor growth numbers or maybe yeah. poor financials, but he said something interesting where he was like, okay, you can look at our growth, but look at the average time spent by each user when they open our yeah. app. And I think, yeah. I wouldn't want to say it easily outbeats all the other social media apps, but like I've it, experienced yeah. it. If I'm on Snapchat, I stay on Snapchat for at least two to three minutes at a time. Yeah, it's not exactly. the type of app and to go in and leave. It's like a, it's not a transactional app. You go in there. It's a bit like Instagram. Instagram is exactly the same. Yeah. Um, you, when you go on Instagram, you go in there to spend time on Instagram. You don't go in there to message someone and come out. You don't go in there to check an event. You go in there. You can literally go in in, in Instagram to see the happiest bits of the world all at once. <laughs> you work for Instagram now. <laughs> it's, it's all it's all the happy stories. Instagram is just like la da 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 da. Oh, happy day! Look at me, I'm in the field. Look at me, I just completed a run. Look at my food. Look, I'm on holiday. Like the explore tab. <laughs> yeah, like you don't see any miserable photos on Instagram, and even if you do, it's like still positive. Like oh, yeah. I'm so happy. You have to like, like, like you have to search hard stuff. for the, like the dark side of Instagram. Yeah, you have to go really. Like you have to know, like, you have to know what to search yeah. for. Even. It's not. It's not like uh, they, and the trolls don't exist on Instagram. No. Like, have you noticed this? There are no like. Mate, it's a happy maybe, place. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm cursing myself, but I've never been trolled on Instagram. I've been spammed, but even the spam is so easy to just get rid of. Yeah, it's, like you just block it, and it's gone. And the trolls are just non-existent on Instagram. It's not the um like, abusive pit that YouTube's become. Anyway, we sort of lost our way with this uh, topic on the BBC, but yeah, I just, I just think, I think, I think the BBC could do so well, like. It is like, and I say this as a thing of pride. I think it's absolutely amazing that over the years we've built this organization that just has this unbelievable capability to create and deliver content. I mean, look at the Olympics in 2012. That was like, the broadcasting of that globally was just an absolute masterpiece. Like, I've never seen anything. The 26 done to separate that channels, like, that was amazing. That was unbelievable. Like, seriously. And the audacity to even try and do that. If Netflix tried to do that, they'd fail. <laughs> the streaming server would crash or something else would crash. I mean, the engineering behind that was just a big, big sign that BBC has the people, it has the capability. It just needs the focus. It doesn't even, this is the, this is one of those strange situations where it's not even that it needs to go and buy those people and hire those people. No, yeah. it's got all those people. It just needs a renewed focus. And that focus, it can't do that focus because it's hamstrung by this charter, which is partly you know a political thing but it's also partly like a, a traditional thing i mean when the bbc was conceived this was when tv 
was really hard to come by. So someone had to look out for the rights of everyone and make sure the content represented everyone. Yeah. But now we're in a world where you, you can stream Netflix on the train from work. It needs to be reimagined. That relationship needs to be reimagined. And the BBC needs to be let off its leash and just, just to go out there and absolutely kill that game. I, like the BBC, for me, needs to be private company going up head to head with the Netflixes and Amazons. And it's funny because what do you think the aspirations of Netflix are? Like, let's take Netflix. That's, that's the one service I use the most. What do you think the aspirations of Netflix are? I mean, I was going to sum this whole topic by, so I was watching an HBO documentary on Dr. Dre and Jimmy Ivan yeah. called The Defiant Ones. And yeah. the most interesting thing which I took out of it was Jimmy Ivan was talking about Apple Music and their plan for yeah. the future. And he said, mm -hmm. the goal I have for Apple Music is to be a venue for culture. And so you yeah. think about that statement and you go back exactly. to what the BBC was saying, like the 1970s, when yeah. media entertainment was solely, yeah, I'd say solely based on the form of radio and TV. I think yeah. the BBC was the mega. It was what Apple wants to be in like 10, 20 years. But now exactly, I think it just, it's maybe lost sight of that because the reality yeah. is we haven't even mentioned Apple in this game or Microsoft, but like um, yeah, they're coming yeah, yeah, yeah. in. And when you think about the cash reserves they're sitting on, like... We talk about how much I mean, money Apple could buy out everyone we're talking about. Yeah, we talk about how much money Netflix is invested into properties, and you just know that Apple's oh like ready to hit the gauntlet whenever. So Apple's Apple's issue isn't how much money it has; it's how to move the money. Yeah, they can't move the money quick enough. It's like oh crap. But I think just uh, I I fear for BBC trying to compete with Netflix or any of those. I just I just don't think it has the capital behind it. So I, I read a really interesting article on The Verge, which is where I get this idea from. And it is so true. Like Netflix isn't trying to become the best streaming company in the world. It's already achieved that. In fact, it's superseded that. The reason they're buying all this stuff and they're trying to create content is Netflix wants to be the next Disney. And if you think about what Disney represents, <laughs> Disney isn't just Disney isn't just a media organization. This is why possibly Disney's pulling away yeah. all its content from that Netflix. Was big. Because they've just, they've just suddenly realized, wait a minute, if we keep giving them all our content, in a very short amount of time, you'll have the first feature film by Netflix, the first this, this by Netflix. And if they figure out the merchandising, this is what Netflix doesn't do so well yet, how to merchandise its content. Like imagine House of Cards merchandise stuff. Have you seen that anywhere? No. Imagine, no. I mean, exactly. this is a random exactly. thought, but imagine Netflix first original animated film or series. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's it's the ability to merchandise the hell out of the stuff. That's where Disney absolutely makes a killing. Everyone thinks they make a killing in the cinema. No, right. Disney makes a killing when you go to Disneyland and you buy a Mickey Mouse hat and you buy an Iron Man t-shirt and you buy this and that. And, you know, they buy up media uh, properties for the merchandising capability. All that Star Wars crap. Like, you've seen all the right. Star, Star Wars t-shirts. You've seen all the, like, literally. Man, I, played, I played the Star Wars board game. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, you can't. You can't mention a Disney property in any kind, whether it's song, TV or anything, without there being merchandise for it. Take a Netflix show. I, I literally cannot tell you I've ever seen a House of Cards t-shirt. No, I literally cannot ever official. tell you I've seen anything from Netflix. Exactly, not official. But that's the thing. There's, there's no merchandising thing. And this is it. Netflix has that kind of aspiration to be the next big Disney and to go even beyond that, to do it globally, because Disney is kind of Western, right? But Netflix is buying up content and creating original content for Asian markets. I mean, do you know that when Netflix creates an original series, they don't just shoot the, um, they don't just shoot the show for the home market. What they do is there are episodes and scenes where they go and shoot that particular part, however many times in however many localities that they're doing it in. So for example, 
Um, you might have like House of Cards. This isn't a bad example because it's a Western show. But imagine if a particular scene in House of Cards was shot in 25 different locations and the version that you saw in your country best matched your audience. That's the level of customization Netflix are able to do yeah. with the amount of money they're spending. And if you take that concept forward, you will get so much content out of that that people will just be so excited about. And so going back to the BBC and, you know, what they should do, like, this is the kind of aspirations they should have. I think it's too small an ambition. I'm sad to say, but it's too small of an ambition for them just to be looking to provide great content here in the UK. I think it's too small of an ambition for them to be chasing Netflix. They need bigger ambitions. They need to go aggressively at, at other, you know, other goals. And in order to do that, I don't want to have to pay for that as a license fee holder <laughs> because the kind of investment that takes is unbelievable. They need to go out to Silicon Valley and ask investors and investors will turn up with their checkbooks why because the bbc has, has a proven capability to do this stuff time and time again and i know a lot of people say that, you know bbc shouldn't be privatized and so on and so forth but i actually think it should be because when they do that and they're actually able to go out and get those good salaries and those good budgets and those amazing opportunities they'll eat they'll be even better placed to customize their content and there's no one better placed to do that than the bbc i like genuinely genuinely if you look at just the quality of the way they deliver content and all of that yes iplayer isn't as good as netflix but my word the shows themselves and the ability they have is just phenomenal it is anyway that's 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 i think we're going to end the show yeah there, I feel like that's my, sort of my speech to uh, <laughs> your inspirational call to action <laughs> yeah we probably went on a bit longer than that and i probably lost my way a couple of times in this podcast like i i feel very passionately about this issue because i feel like everyone is focusing on the wrong thing i think the gender inequality thing was just a tip on the iceberg yeah. of the kind of range of issues that are wrong in, in the bbc and actually they need to be like other companies need to do the same. Other companies need to be made to publish their um, uh, the gender sort of pay and other inequality sort of, I'm going to call them diversity reports. That's what technology yeah. companies call them. But at the same time, it's not an issue just in the BBC. The people just got to let go of that concept straight away. And actually they need to enable the company to go out and do great stuff. And it's, it's just not in the right setup at the moment with, the, with this Royal Charter and so on and so forth. Right, just call it there. Okay, so this has been episode eight of A Decade Apart. You can find us uh, on Twitter and Facebook. Our tag is Decade Apart Pod. You can find show notes for this episode on decadeapart.com forward slash eight, and you'll see all the show notes and links to the articles that we've talked about. Okay, that's the show. Um, Kevin, I'll see you next week. See you next week, mate. Good speaking.